0: What I wanna do is walk you through the ultra concrete steps that I went through, the changes that I had to make to truly become unstoppable. So that's what this is all about. Now, I want to define unstoppable. It's a cool headline that led you this far, but the notion for it to really be usable, we're gonna to have to pull it out of the ether and bring it right back down to life. Now here's the truth, life is fucking hard. That is just a truth, but you have a choice. All of us have a choice, whether we're going to be weak or we're going to be strong. And one of the things that I had to learn in my life is that choice is mine, it is nobody else's, and that if I was going to make a choice to be strong, that I was going to have to take complete ownership of my life, I was gonna have to hold myself to a standard, and, this may be the most important, I couldn't tolerate weakness in my life. And look, I'm not saying that hardships don't befall people. I'm not even saying that some of you watching this, the deck is stacked against you so viciously, it is clearly not fair but I will ask this question, and now what? If life is inordinately stacked against you for whatever reason, bad genetics, bad parenting, grow up in the wrong neighborhood, whatever the case may be, for whatever reason the deck is stacked against you, and now what? What are you going to do about it? The only thing that you can really do is Get fucking strong, toughen up, carry whatever burden you have, and show people that you can do anything you set your mind to. But to do that, you've gotta take responsibility for becoming great. And greatness is not some bullshit pie in the sky thing, it's a set of fucking skills that lets you climb up the competency hierarchy to actually get better, to outperform people, and to do what the ancient Greeks called techne to build a set of skills that means something to you for whatever reason that you've worked your ass off to acquire that allow you to serve not only yourself, but to serve other people. All right, in life, there are two ways to lose. Way number one is to be weak, to lack grit, to be emotionally unstable, to be stubborn. That's where a lot of people fall on their face. They have these fucking ideas in their head and they're constantly looking for things to affirm that instead of doing what they need to do, which is constantly looking for ways that you're wrong. And once you start seeking out ways that you're wrong, because you're like, I've gotten this far in life being wrong. What happens if I stop being stubborn? I start looking for ways that I can learn more, that I can get rid of old ideas that aren't working for me and really move forward. And the thing that I think is probably the most foundational, they have a fixed mindset. Now, what is a fixed mindset? It means that you believe your talent and intelligence are inborn traits. You're born with it and that's it. And life is about making the best of that and we're gonna debunk the shit out of that. The second way that things can go wrong is they're chasing the wrong thing. I'm telling you right now, the punchline to life is not success, it's not fame, it's not money, it's not accolades. It is very simple. It's brain chemistry, AKA fulfillment. The only thing that really matters at the end of the day is how you feel about yourself when you are by yourself. And this class is really going to be about building in those things that make you feel confident and secure in who you are, impervious to the slings and arrows that come from other people. And that really is something that you can do, but it's going to take a lot of earning credibility with yourself, putting in the work to really become extraordinary. But we're going to walk through the step-by-steps of how you do that. Now what's the cost of weakness? As somebody who spent year, decades of my life, much to my dismay, um, accepting weakness in my life, being very okay with performing below my standard, constantly asking myself what what is the least I need to do uh, to avoid getting in trouble, and the cost of that is a loss of self-respect or just never building self-respect in the first place, certainly you're not gonna make any progress in life. You end up leading in this downward spiral because weak people are bitter people because they feel like they're being taken advantage of. They're not taking ownership in their life. They're putting the blame on other people and because of that, they start to get pissed. They have some really fucking dark fantasies and I'm going to imagine that many of you are like me and in my weekdays, man, I used to think about just bad shit happening to other people. The people that I imagined were the people that were holding me down when in truth, what was happening is I wasn't standing up for myself and what I was really pissed about was that. Or maybe not even that, I really was pissed at the other people but what was stopping me from making progress, what was focusing me on vengeance and wanting to see other people go down in flames was that I didn't believe that I could rise up and because I didn't believe I could rise up, the only thing I could think about was tearing other people down we're going to break you out of that. All right, what's the cost of strength? Eternal vigilance. You always have to be on the lookout. It's so easy to slide back into a fixed mindset. It's so easy to get angry or bitter or to look at somebody else and how much easier we perceive them as having it, especially in fuck in Instagram or Facebook where you're seeing people putting their highlight reel and you think, fuck them. Like I want some of that in my life. It's not fair. And once you find yourself there, you have to catch yourself every fucking time. You've got to get out of that pattern. You've got to break those notions of, one, comparing yourself to other people, which comparison is the thief of joy, and you've got to realize you've got to take ownership. If you want the same results somebody else is getting, you've got to build the same skill set. And that brings us to clarity. What do you want? If you want to be strong, you're gonna have to know exactly where you're trying to get to, and you've got to accumulate the skills necessary to take you there. And to do that, it's all going to take a lot of hard fucking work. All right. I told you a little bit about my backstory, but I'll go into a tiny bit more detail. Uh, When I went to film school, college, um, I did really well in the beginning, and I really thought that I was naturally talented, and I was so stoked and i thought i was one of only four people selected to do a senior thesis in a school where you're more likely to get into harvard law than you already get into this school so i thought it was hot shit. i got into the school everyone told me i'd never get in i got in and then on top of that Everyone's like, well, you got in, but you're never going to direct your senior thesis. And I got selected to do that as well. And so I thought I was going to kill it on the senior thesis. I was going to graduate, get my three picture deal in Hollywood, and my life was going to be set. And then I completely fucked up my senior thesis film and realized one cold, hard fact. I wasn't talented. Now... If I'd had a growth mindset and realized I just wasn't talented yet, and I could build those skills, then everything would have, been, would have been fine, but the reality was I didn't realize that. I get into this downward spiral, I start sliding towards depression, I end up getting fired from a stupid job, I called myself the king of remedial jobs at that time, I was having trouble paying my bills at once, I was on unemployment for a while, I couldn't pay my student loans, I mean it was, it was gnarly, and I didn't know how to get out of that, and I ended up being able to completely turn my life around but i wasn't able to do that until i took full and complete ownership and realized one of the most important things when you think about change which is that the human animal is the ultimate adaptation machine we are literally designed to change we are designed from the ground up to adapt to stressors directed stressors we have to decide in what way we want to change but we can change in any way that we want and i ended up after going through that whole process being somebody who was not only capable of lifting themselves up but i ended up running a production line in a manufacturing company that i helped found that went from nothing to being number two on the inc 500 list and on the production line there were both crips and bloods and able to help keep the peace keep that going and running smoothly because I had taken myself from that broken, scared, insecure kid who didn't think that he could get better to realizing that I could own myself, that I could be confident, that I could develop the skill set both leadership skills, soft skills, hard skills, and that I could go in there and I could command that kind of respect. In fact, a better way to say it, I earned their respect by working harder than anybody else, by having a deeper set of skills, and by empowering them and lifting them up, all of the things that I'm gonna be walking you through in this class. Now, the way that you earn respect with yourself and others is through fucking performance. So I'm now going to walk you through the concrete steps that you're going to get to that level of performance. Step number one, you have to own your life. If you haven't heard of the notion of extreme ownership, I highly encourage you to read the book by the same name, by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. And the punchline of all of it is, if you're blaming other people for the state of your life, you are fucked my friend because you're pointing at the wrong person you're looking in the wrong place why not because you won't be victimized you will be victimized in your life unfair shit is going to happen to you bad breaks are going to come your way things that shouldn't be that difficult are that difficult there may be systematic injustice against you but if you don't believe to the core of your being in cause and effect, you're never going to be able to set yourself free. The whole idea behind extreme ownership is not to victim blame or to say anything harsh or negative about you. It is simply to remind you that when you take ownership, when you're not looking to deflect blame, you go into a proactive, solution-oriented mindset and you start asking, what could I have done differently to get a different result? That's it what could I do differently that will get me a different result? Once you put yourself in that frame all the time, always and forever, over and over and over, not only do you earn people's respect because you're never looking to blame somebody else, you're always asking yourself, what did I do to end up here? How did I put myself in the situation? Even if the response from the outside world is unjust, unfair, all of that, but you're looking at it and you're not asking, oh, I want this to change, I want it to be different, woe is me, I'm a fucking victim, which is passive, which is giving up your power. You retain your power. You say, I believe in cause and effect. I can do something different and I can get a different effect. When you own that, then you are able to make progress. And the other thing that you remember is the human adaptation response is... The way i like to think of it is it's a response to adapt or die you're putting your body and your mind under directed stress meaning it's disciplined practice you're really looking at what what do my goals demand where am i trying to get to we're going to talk more about clarity in a minute but where do i want to get to what's the skill set gap that i have to cross and then how do i actually be How do I actually practice those things? How do I put myself in that very specific stress environment where I'm getting to the edge of my abilities, I'm going a little bit beyond, and then I get a little bit stronger, I'm able to do a little bit more, I push myself into those areas, and it's not about just doing what you're good at. This is the thing that drives me crazy when people give that advice. It is not just about doing what you're good at. It's about figuring out what do I need to get good at in order to achieve my goal. And then going into the areas via practice where you are weak, breaking those down and saying, I'm going to need to get good at this thing, which I may not be naturally good at, but I'm going to have to practice and get good at that thing. And once you understand the way the mechanisms of brain plasticity and the way that your brain is trying to rewire itself, to optimize for the thing that you repeat. So when you go in and you start practicing and you're pushing outside of your comfort zone, you're doing it over and over and over, your brain reorganizes itself and you can quite literally change the form and function of your brain in order to accommodate the new skill that you're trying to acquire. It's what I call the only belief that matters. The fact that as you put your, your time and energy into doing something, into getting good at it, that you will be rewarded, your energies and efforts will be rewarded with a new set of skills that have utility. You can deploy that utility to be able to do different shit. So the easiest way to think about it is to use the body as an analogy. I think everybody agrees if you go into a gym and you lift weights and you lift them to failure and you're pushing yourself to lift things that are a little bit heavy, they're a little bit outside your range, you can't do it three times, maybe you can only do it once or twice. You go the next time and oh, you can only do it once before but now you can do it twice and then you can do it three times and then you can do a heavier weight for once and then that one's at three times and then all of a sudden the one that you could only do once a while ago, you're now doing for 15 reps and you get bigger and you get stronger. People get it when it comes to the body but a very similar process is happening in the mind when you go to learn new skills. And if you believe in that, which you don't have to take my word for it, you can go look up brain plasticity. It's fucking real. This is not debated anymore. This was highly debated back in the 90s. Nobody's debating this shit anymore. Brain plasticity is real. You can learn new things. You do create new brain cells at any age, literally until the day you die. So, once you understand, once you take ownership, once you start looking at skill acquisition, once you're doing, uh, you're forcing yourself into that adaptation response, you're putting directed stress on your abilities, then you're going to be able to expand your abilities. Hey everybody, Tom here. Quick question. Are you enjoying today's episode? Certainly hope so. If you are, here's the deal. Today's class is a preview of a workshop that I gave from Impact Theory University called How to Own Your Life. Over the last few months and years, I have to imagine all of us have been given a lot lot of valid reasons to stop chasing our goals and dreams and give up ownership of our future. It's a pretty weird time. But like I said at the start of this workshop, life is brutally tough and you're going to be tested over and over again. The lessons and tactics you're learning right now are going to be needed now more than ever. In this free preview here, I'm giving you the first five strategies to truly take ownership of your life. And if you want to get free access to the second half of this workshop, you can register to watch part two at own your life dot impacttheory.com or just click the link in the description when you do i'll also send you the worksheet that accompanies this class which includes action items and summaries of everything we're covering here again your link is ownyourlife.impacttheory.com go register now then come back here and finish this episode all right let's get back to it all right step number two learn to create new values this is where people fall down this is the thing that i don't think anybody is talking about which is that your value system is malleable. Now, the easiest way to explain this is to talk about how South Korean Airlines used to to have the worst safety record in all the airlines. And there was this really cool documentary um, that was done called something like Fox Tango Charlie or something, it's three call signs anyway. I need to remember this so I can fucking just tell people what it is. But be very easy for you to find And in that documentary, they reenact, like a play, the black box recording of some of the most famous airline disasters in history. And one of them is from South Korean Airlines. And the way that the co-pilot, who could tell that they were about to crash into a mountainside, was... He was so afraid to break cultural protocol, didn't want to push too hard, didn't want to be disrespectful, and so literally let them crash into a mountainside because he didn't want to offend the pilot who kept saying, no, everything is fine. And when I was watching that, I was like, are you out of your fucking mind? I'd be freaking out. I would grab the sticks if I had to, and I thought, but I'm not foolish enough to think that if I were raised in that environment, that I wouldn't have that same value structure where hierarchy means everything, respecting your elders means everything. And so the only way that they were able to break down that value system was in the cockpit, and this completely reversed their safety record. In the cockpit, they were only allowed to speak English. They had to refer to each other by their first names, and there was a written protocol for how you can interrupt them um, and tell a pilot that they're wrong and that they're making a mistake. And I thought, that's so interesting. They're doing everything they can with the different language, with the first names, to get them out of that traditional value system, shake them out, and let them know there's a different value structure when you're inside a plane. Now, it's really, that story is really interesting to me because we have here at Impact Theory a South Korean person who grew up here in America, and for them, that value system seems just as weird because they were raised here in America. And I thought that's so interesting. From a DNA perspective, obviously matches very well in, uh, with the South Korean values that we would typically think were, oh no, it's just innate, it's just, it's, it is a truth. And that is often what people mistake their very changeable values for, is they mistake it for truth. That of course you afford your elders that level of respect. Of course you would never dare to challenge somebody who's your superior. And it seems self-evidently true to somebody who grew up in that. Now, the reason that I belabor that point is I want you to understand, growing up where you grew up, with the parents that you had, in the culture that you had, all of that stuff has shaped your value system. And you don't even realize you've been making choices all along the way that have developed a value system for you. And what I want you to start doing now is challenging those values and asking, what do I want to value? Now, the reason that this makes sense is because once you invest in a value and you say, okay, this thing, I'm going to choose to value this. Like, I value speed. I value efficiency. Now, because I have chosen to value it, because I've invested so heavily into that, into... And I do it, by the way, because it's good for business. So I want to have this neurochemical reaction, which is the big reason for developing your values. You wanna have a neurochemical reaction so that you get a positive reward when you move fast, when you create momentum, so that when I'm doing something that aligns with what a business needs, a business needs momentum. Okay, so if a business needs momentum, I need to prize momentum, which means I need to make it a value. So what do you do? Write your values down. Journal about your values and why they're important. That is a really critical part of all this so that you're reinforcing it in your own mind. And then when you're aligned with it, then you want to um, reward yourself, and you're gonna have to get good at that, Of congratulating yourself, telling people that you love. Like I always tell my wife, if I did something that I'm super excited about and that's really important to me, I'll let her know so that I'm not only writing it down, I'm getting that external reinforcement, and then that over time hardwires that neurochemical reward into you. So repetition is gonna be a big part of this, but decide what your values are gonna be, realize that they're malleable, and then build, which is step number three, the ultimate value stack for becoming unstoppable. Number one in the value stack that you should build is self-reliance. You need to know that nobody's coming to save you, that you shouldn't want anyone to save you, that you should want to be in control of your own life. You should look at what you're trying to accomplish, recognize what the skill set is that you need to get, and then realize that no one's going to push you to do it. You have to do it. Don't wait for somebody to remind you or hold you to a standard. Hold yourself to that standard. The next is self-respect. You need to have integrity. If you say something, do that thing. You want to know that you can trust yourself. When you know you can trust yourself and you're doing things that are worthy, that you value, then you begin to develop that self-respect. You're not gonna get anywhere until you're able to build that self-respect. And it really does start nice and small, nice and simple. If you say you're gonna do something, do it. So pick things in your real life, whether it's going to the gym, whether it's cutting out sugar, whether it's taking a cold shower. You wanna have bright lines in your life that you use that you make sure you're building into your self-respect. I said I was gonna do it, and I do it no matter how fucking hard it is. If you do that, if you start sticking to what you say, like you're going to commit to yourself in this course, and if you actually stick through, win or lose, succeed or fail, you're going to build your self-esteem. All right, the next thing that you want to have as a value is growth. You want to make sure that every day you're checking yourself. Am I actually getting better? Am I pushing myself outside my comfort zone and improving? And if you're not improving, then that needs to be one of those things that, oh man, it sucks. You're like, fuck, I'm just stagnant. I'm not really getting anything done. That needs to bother you. A big part of this is that it's going to bother you on a body level, no matter what, because the human animal is wired to be chemically rewarded for growth. Progress is a foundational part of getting better. It's a foundational part of fulfillment. And if you want to have that level of fulfillment in your life, then you've got to be focused on growth. The next is resilience, a.k.a. toughen the fuck up. I know a lot of people don't like to hear it like that, but I wanna get your attention. You need to toughen up. You cannot tolerate weakness in yourself. That's just the fucking truth. And you've got to, when you know that you're acting weak, you've gotta call yourself out. You've gotta say, I don't allow that in my life. And valuing resilience is gonna be one of those things that one, it's, it is a skill set that you can absolutely develop. And when you value that, then you're going to get stronger and stronger and be able to carry more and more weight as you go. And if you wanna talk about earning people's respect, let me tell you, when you're the one that in the middle of chaos is calm, is steady, can provide leadership, all of a sudden, you're gonna see how that begins to advance you in any aspect of your life, from self-esteem to moving up in a company. So that is the ultimate value stack. Step four, you're gonna have to get mentally tough. So going back to resilience, now I wanna detail out exactly how you build that. You're gonna develop grit. If you haven't read Angela Duckworth's book, Grit, read it. She defines grit as passion and perseverance over time. So often people say that they wanna do something, but then, ah, they got into it, they did it for a couple months, and then they lose interest and they stop doing that. if you do it once or twice, fair enough, you're finding that thing that really resonates with you. But if you find you're doing it over and over and over, chances are you don't have the grit to persevere when things get hard or when they get boring. And that's, the boredom is something a lot of people don't see coming. So you wanna make sure that you're able to develop your passion and persistence over time. The next thing you wanna do is move towards fear. I find that fear is a very useful thing. It can keep you safe, but it can also keep you small. Fear is an indicator that there are stakes. Now, if you look at it and the stakes are life or death, don't do it, that doesn't make any sense. But if you look at it and the stakes are, embarrassment, the stakes are you might fail, then that is almost certainly something that you should move towards. That's one of the ways that you begin to build that mental toughness, is when you expose yourself to fear, what the literature shows is you're not actually getting less afraid. What you're doing is getting braver. That is a big deal. You wanna make sure that you're pushing yourself and you're actually getting braver as you go the next is emotional stability get control of your emotions so many people believe their emotions because they have an emotion they actually allow themselves to embody it and act as if it is true the reality is you need to learn to get control of your emotions so that you can go from that the in fact i'll explain it a better way Um, it is famously said that there is the space between stimulus and response and that little gap is where you get to elicit control. Someone may do something to you that offends you, but how you respond is up to you. You can't control the incoming stimulus. You may not even be able to control that it offends you, but you can actually absolutely control how you react to that. And so you wanna make sure that you understand something about the brain. The brain tries to justify the size of your reaction. So if your reaction is small, And you don't let it upset you. You stay centered. Then the brain goes, oh, I guess that wasn't that big of a deal. If on the other hand, you freak the fuck out. Like this is something in my real marriage. This, this is hilarious. My wife cannot fucking stand it. If somebody cuts in front of her in line, man, that is such an offense to her. It violates her principles. And she wants to get super pissed and worse. She wants me to get pissed. But because I value the staying calm, equanimity, and I don't value raging out or freaking out, so I weigh, is it really a big deal if they cut? If it is and I'm like running late for a flight or something, then I'm gonna say, yo, motherfucker, you gotta get out because there's something else that's going on that makes that an important moment to me. But if it's a moment where it doesn't really matter and I know that by having a big reaction, my mind is gonna reinforce that it's a big deal and it's only gonna bother me more the next time, then I keep my equanimity, I stay chill, and my brain goes, oh, I guess this isn't that big of a deal. So you really want to make sure that you practice that stuff. One of the best ways to practice that, uh, believe it or not, is a cold shower, but we'll get more into that later. All right. You want to increase your ability to deal with stress. So part of this comes down to identity. So what kind of person are you? So I use the phrase, I'm the type of person that. So I'm the type of person that stays chill in the face of stress. Now why do I do that? Because to run a business where things are constantly going wrong, you have to be able to stay chill even in the face of stress. So I need to value that, going back to what's the value hierarchy? What are the values necessary to achieve my goals? and then i know my values are malleable so i'm going to choose to value being chill and the way that i'm going to reinforce that and really make it something that influences my behavior is to remind myself of what kind of person i am to value being that kind of person to tell other people that i'm that kind of person and then want to be congruent with that notion and the feeling of congruence of saying i'm a certain way acting that way and then actively valuing it. So when I act in alignment with that, with that, I feel good about that because I've done the hard work of building that value into my neurology so that I have this, this neurological, neurochemical cascade of actual feel-good chemicals so that I really feel this sense of psychological um, positivity as I act in accordance with that identity. So identity's huge. Identity drives behavior. So you wanna really take control of that. Make sure you're crafting an identity and telling yourself a narrative that empowers you and makes you feel good about yourself. All right, the other thing you wanna do is reframe stress as a challenge. Just reframing it, in fact, this this is true of anything. There's an amazing Shakespeare quote, nothing is either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. And once you reframe stress, instead of being something that's dangerous, something to be avoided, you reframe it as a challenge, something that you can learn from, then all of a sudden it becomes something that you're willing to move towards, and obviously moving towards the things that are stressful, which signal that there are stakes, right? Going back to that notion of fear, when you are moving towards the things that actually matter, that actually have stakes, those are probably the biggest areas for opportunity. So when you look at that as something that is a challenge, then you can begin to make progress. And like I said a minute ago, meditation is one of the best ways to get into this. Like if you want to get mentally tough, ironically enough, you're going to want to practice your meditation so that you can practice rapidly de-escalating your emotions, rapidly de-excitating your nervous system, going from the sympathetic nervous system, which is fight or flight, to the parasympathetic nervous system, which is rest and digest. All right, you guys are going to have to get super comfortable being uncomfortable, whether that means that you want to go run a marathon or ask somebody for their phone number, whatever your uncomfortable is, you want to be able to live in that space and be chill about it. And this is another area that cold showers are amazing because cold showers suck and they're going to send you into fight or flight immediately. Everything in your body is going to be screaming for you to get the fuck out of that cold water. It's actually going to feel like it's life or death, but it's not. And so you can stand in there in the cold water. Relax yourself, calm down, and realize, okay, nothing bad is happening. And when you push that and extend the time, you get better and better with dealing with discomfort. Now, depending on what your goal is, this may be incredibly valuable. If you have any um, notion of developing leadership in your life, if you have any idea of wanting to take on more responsibility because you want to do more with your life or you want to make more money, getting comfortable in those areas of discomfort is going to be absolutely critical. Even telling the truth can be completely uncomfortable because you're upsetting somebody else or it's a very hard truth, and so getting comfortable there is, is very critical. All right, for me, one of the things I struggled with was standing up for myself. I was always worried about hurting other people's feelings. I was always worried of potential confrontation and so getting comfortable in that friction sitting there until we actually find a solution instead of wanting to make everything okay as fast as possible that was really really critical all right you need to get up every time you fail this is one of those things that you can practice look There's no way to guarantee that you're not going to fail but you can certainly practice getting up every time you fail and the way to do that is to develop a growth mindset so we um, described or defined a fixed mindset earlier a fixed mindset is when you believe your talent and intelligence are fixed traits A growth mindset is when you believe your talent and intelligence are malleable traits, that you can actually change them, you can improve them, you can get better over time, smarter over time, more competent over time. And to do that, you just need to reframe the failure as a learning experience. So that's one of the big ones. People that can really fail without losing their enthusiasm. In in fact, it's a Churchill quote. He says, success is going from failure to failure to failure without a loss of enthusiasm. So reframe that failure as a learning experience because failure is truly the most information-rich data stream there is. All right, step five. You've gotta push yourself physically. If you wanna get tough, you've got to test yourself. And there's no better or more reliable way to test yourself than to push yourself physically. You've got to stop asking how little you can get away with and start asking one of the most powerful questions in the universe, which is how much can you bear? Adaptation only happens when you get way outside of your comfort zone, when you get to fatigue, when you get to absolutely not being able to lift another rep. That's when your body shifts over into adapt or die mode and you begin to actually make progress. If you haven't read David Goggin's book, Can't hurt me, he talks about how to callous your mind through physical activity, how to do some really hard shit and hold yourself accountable so that you're actually asking yourself, I said I was gonna do this, did I do it or not? Am I doing hard things physically? Am I challenging myself? And because the mind and body live in this reciprocal loop, If you're not optimizing one, you're never going to be able to fully optimize the other. So I wish, I wish personally that I could just treat myself like a brain floating in a jar somewhere. That would be ideal for me, but I know that I cannot cognitively optimize. I know that I will never reach my maximum mental toughness unless... I'm testing myself, putting my body through the paces, making sure that physically I'm in a good place. And every day that passes, science is showing another way that the mind and body are connected and that if one is in ill health, the other is gonna be in ill health. So you've got to make sure that as a way to really toughen up as a total ecosystem that you're getting your body and your mind together. And I love Goggins' notion of the accountability mirror, of looking yourself dead in the fucking eye at the end of every day or at the beginning of the day and evaluating your past performance and what you're gonna do in the future. I think it is extraordinarily helpful to be honest with yourself, be very direct, not as a way to beat yourself up, and I know a lot of people get stuck there. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being honest with yourself about what you're doing, about how you've performed, about whether or not you're being weak in something. Because if you're being weak, the only problem with that is ignoring it is pretending like it's okay, is not holding yourself to a standard. It's going to happen from time to time, but if you're not honest with yourself about where you are, if you're not having that hard, direct talk, then you're never gonna make progress. All right, I'm gonna give you a few things that I think really play into testing your body. Number one, we've talked about cold showers. These are the fucking like, that's the gold standard of daily things to do to really push yourself. It's not fun, you're not gonna look forward to it, at least not if you're me, but it is one of those things that you get in, at first you do it for a very brief period period of time, then you extend it farther and farther and really begin to see just how much you can handle physically and mentally. Cold exposure also has some pretty extraordinary effects. and Another one is getting your diet right. I think that a lot of times people are pretty lax on their diet, has a big impact on you mentally. I think you're going to have a very hard time. Um, becoming unstoppable if your body's weak, if you're, um, you know, wildly overweight, if you're out of shape, like these are things that really matter. I think they matter psychologically and I think they matter physically. So getting your diet on track is super important. It's beyond the scope of this to talk about what a good diet looks like. I've talked about it. We have a whole show called Health Theory. It's all free. You can go check it out. Um, And then fasting. I think fasting is an awesome gut check mentally. You're going to find out real fast what you're capable of in terms of the fortitude of sticking with that. So it's a great physical test to put yourself through to see where you're at. All right. I want to issue a challenge to you guys. One, I want you to take ownership of your life. I want you to say what you're going after. I want you to write it down. I want you to write down your values. Then I want you to live by them and do the accountability mirror and see if you're actually doing it and I want you to immediately begin interrupting the victim mentality. So when you have that, woe is me, it's not my fault, it was so and so, they did it to me, I want you to stop that immediately, remind yourself that you own your life, remind yourself of cause and effect, remind yourself that you are in control, you could make a different decision and you could get a different outcome because you can't control the world, you can't control other people, you can only control yourself. And between that stimulus and that response is your ability to make a different choice. All right, if you're reframing your failures in your life, seeing them as lessons, you've got a real opportunity to progress. If you create a compelling future for yourself and write it down, know where you wanna be, know who you wanna be, know the skill set that stands between you and that by really contemplating it, writing it down, being very specific, that will be incredibly powerful. Just make sure it's something that actually excites you complete the PDFs so that you have something that's really helping to organize your thoughts and your behaviors and then engage with the community. If you do that stuff, everything that we just talked about in this section of the course is going to begin to solidify. All right, there's more. This course is four parts. Next up, Part two, if you thought today was valuable, I think you're really gonna be blown away with what we're gonna be talking about. We're gonna talk about becoming anti-fragile, tapping into your dark side, what Jung called the shadow side. I think it's incredibly powerful, one of the most underutilized tactics. We're gonna get way up in that. And then we're gonna talk about how to super, be supercharged by your own failures and a whole lot more. All right, guys, be sure to come back because at the end of this, you really are, if you put in the work, has it. And with eBay guaranteed fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Gary, take care. First of all, there are many things that we're going to want to do here much of it is gonna be reframing. So I don't know, maybe you really didn't develop skills and maybe you were floundering for seven years and maybe you really did waste that time. Probably not true, but the most terrifying way for you to approach this question is as if that is true, that you really did, quote unquote, waste those years because that's never how I would think about it. But we certainly found things that didn't work, right? So Thomas Edison talks about, I didn't fail 10,000 times, which supposedly is how many filaments, He tried when trying to invent the light bulb. He said, I didn't fail 10,000 times. I simply found 10,000 ways that didn't work. And every attempt discarded is another step forward. Okay, so you just spent seven years putting things to the side that you know aren't gonna work, a bunch of attempts discarded, cool. You're now seven years ahead of everybody else. Now you may be approaching the job market in the wrong way. You may be applying for jobs that require hard skills, but I'm telling you, look, if an entry level position, depending on what you're trying to go into, if it's an entry level position, like I'm trying to be an entry level doctor with my you know seven years of startup experience, this is never gonna work. Or I'm trying to be an entry level coder that's never gonna work, right? There are certain things that have really hard skills and you're gonna need those hard skills. Go learn them, right? So learning this stuff takes time and energy, but that's all it takes, time and energy, okay? It's what I call the only belief that matters. If you put time and energy into learning a skill and getting better, you will actually get better at that skill, okay? I'm not saying it's not hard, but who the fuck cares? Like, I, it drives me crazy that people focus on it's hard. Yes, it's hard. Getting good at shit is hard. Outperforming other people is hard. But if you wanna win, you've gotta do hard shit. So you're gonna to have to lean into this. You're gonna to have to get good. So anyway, the fact that people get weird, that learn to code has become like some sort of weird thing. I don't understand. If you want a job at something that requires a set of skills, go get that set of skills. That's just that fucking simple. Your seven years may have been a total waste of time in the acquisition of skills towards the job that you want now. But unless you just spent the last seven years staring at a wall, you have a treasure trove of learnings that you'll be able to pull from. So now this is a question about how you're approaching the job market, not a question about whether you wasted those seven years. So we have to frame this in such a way that we understand what the value of those seven years was, how we can articulate that value to somebody as we begin approaching the job market, and getting good at pitching yourself is a skill. And it's not necessarily going to come easy, but I have a gut instinct that the real problem that you have is just how to interview for a job, how to explain to people what it is that you're good at. Because the hard knock life of an entrepreneur is, man, the amount that you're learning is so crazy. Leadership, working with people, um, how to create momentum, starting from scratch and getting your first customer. I mean, it's really an extraordinary skill set. So find the right thing to approach from a job perspective. Um, Practice articulating what that is. Walk into the interview armed to the teeth with how you can help their company. Do way more work than anybody else applying for that job and you will get a job. This is where you can learn on your entrepreneurial skills harder than you've ever done in your life to show people the kind of value that you can bring. The last thing I'm gonna give you on that is this idea of starting from scratch. I want you to use the brain in a vat thought exercise. I do this to myself all the time. Every time I can feel I'm about to get stuck in this loop of like, um, you know, have I learned the right things? Am I pointed in the right direction? Do we just spend a year pursuing something that was stupid? I'm never gonna get that year back. I remind myself, it's entirely possible. In fact, I actually am a brain in a vat. It just so happens that the vat is my skull and my brain is creating an artificial reality. I'm not saying we live in a VR world, but I am saying your brain never, light never touches your brain, sound never touches your brain. And yet you have this sense of sound and sight and touch and feel and all that stuff as if it were outside of you when in reality it's being created in this virtual environment, your brain. So what if I were? just a brain in a vat somewhere, and all of my memories are fake, and that I actually just came online seven seconds ago. That thought experiment is so powerful to me because it reminds me, oh, my memories can work for me or against me. They're just the background that I need to give me the context to move forward. So if this is really just about context, right, which is all memories are, it's just context, then while I can't change the memories, I can change how I think about the memories. And so I'm going to recontextualize those seven years as being my 10,000 hours of getting good at something. And now it's like, cool, they weren't failures, they were lessons. And now what I do with those lessons is up to me. This video was brought to you by our very own Impact Theory University. For more information, be sure to check out the description below. This is like one of the key insights of my life. You should only ever do and believe that which moves you towards your goal. So will feeling badly about making what may have been a legitimate mistake. Maybe you handled that poorly. Maybe you should have taken the other job, or maybe you should have waited to tell the other people no until you'd actually signed on the dotted line, right? Super powerful lessons. You're probably gonna handle this differently in the future. But will beating yourself up over it, holding on to it, kicking yourself, thinking what a dumb you are, is that gonna move you towards your goal? If it does, then do it but my gut instinct is it will only serve you as much as it will give you the impetus that you need to ask yourself, what should I do differently the next time? That is powerful. Spiraling out of control because you made a mistake is not powerful. In fact, you need to be decisive in life. You made a fucking decision, it didn't work out. Such is life, it just goes like it goes. So now we need to find a way. I am constantly asking myself, how can I get control in my hands so that I'm not waiting on somebody else, right? You could go right now, start a YouTube channel. You don't have to wait for legacy media to give you the thumbs up. You have a phone, get on your phone, record yourself. If you can add value to people, then you can build an ecosystem. So two things, we're gonna reframe, right? It's a key part of bouncing back from failure. We're gonna reframe that failure. There's powerful lessons to be learned. Looking forward, we're only gonna do and believe about ourselves that which moves us towards our goal. So we're not gonna sit there and think what an idiot we are because it's only gonna slow us down. Negative energy psychologically. It's not putting you in the best place, okay? And then we're gonna realize, hey, we can keep applying, cool, go do it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like become the best interviewer ever, get more jobs, keep going, it's a numbers game. And we always have the other option, which is to build a following for ourselves. But we retain that control. We're always looking for what we could do differently. We're not putting the power in somebody else's hands. Okay, so. Here is a concept. This is a really hard reality to face. When we are young, we can become anything. But as we age, we become something specific. And there's a death in that. There's something that really bothers me about that. That legitimately, I have the chills right now, It that shit haunts me. And so I understand what you're saying. I get, go through the darkness with me here for a minute. I'm going to pull you back out on the other side. I promise. That does suck. And I have a friend who failed to get into the college of his choice, which would have moved him to a different city. And the thing that kept him from going, I mean, it's a whole story. It's too heartbreaking for words. Stupid. And He ended up not moving, and because he didn't move, the course of his life, in my opinion, changed forever. And I remember thinking, why didn't he, if that's what he really wanted, why didn't he try what Alex Benayan calls the third door? You didn't get in the first door, fair enough, right? The just sort of knock, 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 anybody there. You didn't get in the window, right, or the second door, But there's always the third option of going so ham, whatever it takes, by hook or crook, to get in. Like, when you read Alex's book and the things that he did to get an interview with Larry King, the Warren Buffett one is a great example. He wanted to ask a question at the Warren Buffett every year holds the, the conference where shareholders get to come and they get asked questions. He worked so hard to figure out, cause there's, they do it in an arena. There are different microphones all over the arena. And he figured out that certain places get called on more frequently than others. He got like five or six friends that all had, or maybe even bought shares so that they could go do this. And each of them had the same question. Each of them went to the like five or six most likely microphones to get picked and He went and one of them ended up getting to ask the question. And that's the third door. Like doing things that nobody would believe that somebody would do to think that hard about the problem, to understand it that deeply. And this is the thing about magic. So I've studied magic at the Magic Castle. I'm obsessed with magic. Now, why am I obsessed with magic? For one reason. What makes magic work is far more impressive than it being true like Harry Potter style magic. It is that somebody has worked so hard on something, thought so far in advance on something, gone so far out of their way to plant something that when they pull it off, it's easier to believe that it's magic than it is to believe that they went through all of that rigmarole. So for instance, I have seen, um, I think it was David Blaine, have somebody pick a card. And then there's a, it was basketball players, famous NBA players. And over off on the side, there's basketballs. And he has them pick a card, any card they want. And they pick the card. And then, you know, he does the thing, he's like I'm going to find your card and all that. And he's like, you know, is this your card? No, it's not. And then of course that's a plant. And in the end he says, Oh, actually I know where your card is. Go grab one of those basketballs. He doesn't even tell them which basketball to grab just go grab one of those basketballs. They grab a basketball, this motherfucker stabs the basketball with a knife, pops it right there and pulls out a card. It just seems impossible to think that he went to a basketball manufacturer and had them make basketballs with a card in it that he could get you to choose. It's called a force in magic, where you lead somebody to pick a given card. You force them to pick the card that you want them to pick You put that and he may have picked two or three different cards and maybe he had them in different places in the gym. And depending on which card they picked, he'd send them to whichever grouping of basketballs he wanted them to pick. And he knows, okay, you know, that's the ace of spades. uh, That's the king of hearts, like queen of hearts, things that are like most likely for people to pick. And then when you cut it, you just, you can't imagine your brain doesn't even go to that place. But that's, what you have to do, when you've had a tremendous failure to recognize that you've got to get so hardcore that people would sooner believe that it's magic than that you just work that hard. But that if you do that, you really can achieve whatever you want in life. So this thing has kicked you in the teeth. It's made you believe that maybe the thing that you wanted just isn't possible. And because of that, when you failed, it feels like your whole worldview has crumbled. But in reality, there are many things that you could point yourself at, that you could learn to love as much or more than that other thing. And I say, learn to love on purpose. Everything is a process. Love, passion, skills, all of it is a process. But also, there's still that opportunity to get into the third door. So you didn't get in the obvious way, but there is a way. And if you believe that medical school is the right answer for you, now we need to find out what's that path. So I did this with film school. I didn't get into film school the first time that I tried. And all the teachers, or sorry, the counselors When you go see them, USC film school, you are more likely to get into Harvard Law. Statistically, it's not about intelligence, just the number of people that apply versus what gets accepted. You're statistically more likely to get into Harvard Law than you are to get into USC film school. And so every counselor was like, hey, you're not going to get in. And this is one of the, they didn't say words like that. They said the exact word, you are not going to get in. Stop taking classes like you're going to get in. Just the odds are so stacked against you, there's no way. And I just thought, hmm. I'm going to get in because everything in my life is pointed at that. And so I found out who was on the admissions committee and I found out that he offered, you could join him for lunch because he was also a teacher. You could join him for lunch if you were a student in his class. So I took his class and I went to his lunch and I was the only person there, which I still to this day cannot believe that more people didn't take him up on it. And I joined him for lunch and I said, look, I have one question. I didn't, my SAT scores are really low. I got a 990, they wanted a 1300. Scores are all different now, but you get the gap, was fucking huge. I said, what do I need to do with SAT scores this low? And he said, oh, SAT scores just tell us how well you're supposed to do in college. You've already missed the window to get in as a freshman. You have another opportunity as an incoming junior. Just get really good grades. If your grades are higher enough, then you can get into film school. When I say that I nothing else in my life existed for two years, I didn't drink, I didn't go to parties, I didn't even date, I didn't do anything but study. Because I knew that I needed to get good grades. And I ended up getting like a 395 or some crazy shit, and so when I reapplied, I got in, just like he said I would. Okay, that's the third door. Finding out, who's the gatekeeper? What do they actually want? There are other ways to get into medical school, let me tell you. Now it's just a question of, do you want it bad enough to work so hard that when you pull it off, people would rather believe it was magic than just really hard work? Because if you do and you do those things, then, my friend, you will get in. Failure is only permanent if that's what you choose to believe. Reframe it. Recognize you have power. Recognize you have control over what you do and recognize that if you leave people in awe and that my friends is your job the only way to really have mind-blowing success in life is to set the bar ridiculously high and then surpass all expectations and that's when it looks like magic and that's when you'll get what you want that simple don't buy into failure it's just a lesson Oh, my God, my life was tailor-made to answer your question. Okay, so first of all, when I left for college, my mother quietly assumed I was going to fail. Now, she admittedly did not say you're going to fail, but she assumed I was going to fail. My father-in-law, once I'd already graduated, but I wanted his blessing to marry his daughter. He said no, because he didn't believe that I was going to become anything. Now, somebody telling you that they don't want you to marry their daughter because they don't know that you're going to be able to take care of them, that is a pretty direct way of saying, hey, kid, I don't believe in you. I've often said the greatest gift anyone can ever give you is doubt. It isn't belief. Your mom is working for you. Your mom is giving you the best thing that she can give you. Here's the thing. The reason you, oh, I have the chills. The reason that you need her to believe in you is because you don't believe in yourself. The reason you don't believe in yourself is because you actually aren't good enough yet. Now, your obsession, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to become good enough, to get so good that nobody can stop you. You can't be denied that booze can't block your dunks. Let that be the driving force when in your darkest moments you have that reminder that there are people who don't believe that you can pull this off. 80% of your time should be spent in the light. The beautiful things you want to do, your self-belief, focusing on how you're improving over time, spend the, the vast majority of your time there. But there are going to be times dark moments are coming for you and ironically when you feel broken when you feel like you couldn't possibly go another step it's proving them wrong not letting them be right which is dark energy man it's the dark side right but the dark side is powerful that's why it's so seductive we're not going to spend a lot of time there but we're going to recognize its power and you can love your mom and still want to show her. And maybe one way you can think about it, if you want to put this into the beautiful side, that that's your mom who doesn't believe in herself, which is why she can't believe in you. She can't see it for herself, so she can't see it for you. And so showing her just how much is possible by just day after day focusing on getting better. It's okay to not be good enough yet. You're the average human, right? Don't believe that you're special. I don't believe I'm special. I think I'm hopelessly average. Now, when people look at me as an after picture, they, they think I'm being falsely humble, but they didn't see me in my 20s. I was a mess. The reason my mom quietly assumed I was going to fail is because I was on a trajectory to fail. The reason my best friend assumed I was going to marshmallow my way through life, that's a quote, is because I was marshmallowing my way through life. The reason my father-in-law didn't think I was going to succeed is because I didn't have the drive to see my ambition through. These people had not misidentified me. I just wasn't good enough yet. And so... I took that on and said, cool, I love my father-in-law. He's an amazing human being. He was always very kind to me. He was very transparent that he didn't think I was on the right path. My mom, my friends, my father-in-law, they were right. But I could change. I could get better. And so I just became obsessed with getting better. So we don't need to convince mom. We don't need mom to cheer us on. We know It is a fact of the human existence that if you put time and energy into getting better, you will get better. It is true, you cannot make a racehorse out of a pig, but you can make a really fast pig. So maybe this thing that you're pursuing, you're never gonna be the greatest in the world at. But even tenfolding your life would make your life unrecognizable and I will say that somebody who shows up every day for years and years and years and years and years sincerely pursuing improvement won't 10x their life, you'll 100x your life by improving your skills. It's that simple. You're just going to be improving your skills. And suddenly you turn that lack of belief, you turn that failure into being a guiding light for other people, right? When I said I wanted to become an entrepreneur, my family thought it was crazy. They thought I was risking everything. What was I doing? And there were times I wondered about that. Had I just made my, life, my wife's life miserable, right? That her father was right and I really was gonna make my wife's life hard. And I did, quite frankly, for years. Being married to me in the beginning meant poverty. It meant clipping coupons. It meant having to track a $2.99 rental of a movie back when that was a thing. In my dark moments, I worried that they were right. But in my dark moments, I just focused on, I'm not going to let them be right. And I only need one belief. And that is that if I put consistent time and energy into improving my skill set, if I'm honest with myself about where I am, what I need to do to improve, I actually will improve. And so I started saying the following phrase to myself Don't judge yourself through the lens of a moment. Judge yourself through the lens of a lifetime. And maybe a more practical way to think about it is, look at your life in three to 10 year tranches. In any one day, you still feel like a loser, right? But when you look back over three years and you think, hmm, I'm a lot better than I was three years ago. When you think about who you were 10 years ago, like if you're, one of the earlier questions was asked by somebody who was 23. 10 years ago, they were 13. Were they capable? at 13 of what they are now? Not by a long shot. I mean, the the, the radical nature of the change would be staggering from 13 to 23. When I think about who I was at 34, right? I'm 44 now. If I think about who I was at 34, oh my God, like the amount that I'm able to do now that I couldn't do then is truly staggering. And even looking back three years ago, it's staggering. So recognizing that you don't need people to believe in you. You need only believe in a simple fact about the human brain. Time and energy put into getting better will yield improved skill set. Skills have utility, they allow you to do things in the world. Whether your mom believes in you or not, whether anybody believes in you or not, if you get good enough, you will win. It's that. So motivation comes in waves. That's the most important thing to understand. is And that's just neurobiology. So that's true for everybody. Motivation is um, it is a very complicated cocktail of beliefs of excitement, thinking about, you know, what you're going to achieve. It is how your calorie count is, how much sleep you've gotten all of these things bundled up and so it is inevitable that sometimes you're really gonna feel it and sometimes you're not. I am blown away that you were able to get a 70 day streak. Most people go their entire lives and not be able to string something like that together. So some of what we're gonna be doing to get you back in that space is to remember what it was that had you stoked in the beginning. So a big part of motivation is always about actually wanting that thing at the end of the rainbow. So what is your pot of gold, what is the thing that made you wanna do this in the first place? And so when it comes to working out, personally, I absolutely hate working out. So I understand anybody that has motivation for a minute and then ends up burning out. I get that so much I can't even begin to tell you. So here are the things that I do to make sure that even as these sort of ebbs and flows go of my motivation that I stay on track. Number one is making sure that you want that thing at the end, that you're actually excited about that. So you've gotta be honest with yourself about what it is that you want so often People are judging themselves for what it is that they want, that they don't double down on focusing on that thing. So let's say that you just want to look good when you're naked. And that that is the the God's honest truth about what is getting you excited about this. And what you're gonna wanna say is, you know, this is about longevity. I just wanna be healthy, I wanna be, you know, my best self. But in reality, you're just thinking about six-pack abs, washboard stomach, or the way you look when you catch yourself in the mirror, what whatever is real. Or if you're like me and you're a psychopath about wanting to live forever, and that really is the thing that motivates you, then lean into that. But don't let other people's judgments about what you should want. Color what you actually want. Focus on what what is it you really want? What is it you really care about? Grab onto that. Focus on that. Start fantasizing about that again. Spending time thinking about what it would be like to actually have that. Because you said a word in your question that I want to take exception to, which is that you want to find your motivation again. You don't find motivation. You build motivation. So we're going to build that motivation back up by admitting what we really want, by focusing on it and getting hype about it. And then we also want to find a way to really fall. In love with the process. So what is it in the moment, in the act of actually working out that you can get into? Is it the um, getting stronger? For me, that was huge. Like knowing that I was getting stronger and I needed to associate something with that. You wanna have a self narrative around showing up and doing this thing when you know other people can't, they won't during COVID, during lockdown, they're getting worse, they're getting weaker, you're getting stronger, you're getting better and people are so weird about competition, but my friend, let me tell you, one, one of the most controversial posts that I have posted recently, which I did not expect to be controversial, was that I was talking about business, but I said, this is a competition, which is patently self-evident in my opinion, but Being willing to compete with others and to have a self-narrative around striving and pushing and doing more than other people are willing to do, that shit will feed your soul in a way that I can't convey. And people that are afraid to compete, people that are afraid to lean in, people that that are afraid to make huge demands of themselves, they will fall by the wayside to the people that can have that discipline, that get excited about pushing themselves, being accountable, being consistent because ultimately those things lead to an actual outcome, meaning you actually do get stronger, you do get better, you look better, you have better longevity, better stamina, whatever it is, whatever that thing is that you're motivated by, you really can achieve that, but you have to be consistent. Now, I got motivated just answering your question, so I'm very hopeful that that motivated you as well. All right, what's up next, what do we got?
1: Hi, my name is Lydia, I'm a violinist and an actor. an American living in New Zealand now because of coronavirus. I lost my jobs on a uh, cruise ships. So I'm just curious, Tom, as to what advice you'd give to artists beyond doing live streams. Um, so like dancers, actors, or performers, what advice would you give to them how to deal with the Corona situation? What skills should artists be focused on and how can they maximize this quarantine um for the best opportunities.
0: Wow, I love that. So being an artist right now, this is like the best possible time to have something that you can do by yourself that you can improve on by yourself um, that's ultimately going to have real world consequences for you when we get to the other side of this so here is and and something tells me that if you're playing professionally you already know this but here's the the reality about greatness greatness is about doing the things that are tragically boring and that you have to repeat over and over and over to get better at them in a deliberate way. You don't just wanna repeat them blindly, but in a deliberate way, buckling down and doing the things like for a musician, playing your scales, practicing your improvisation, practicing your cold reading, um, all of the things that are very easy to put off when you have a job and you're busy and you're making a living, um, it's it's kind of like typing. What they find is most people sort of um, their their typing rate. If I remember right, it's like sixty-five to seventy words per minute um, is where most people tap out. But I think the record is somewhere around 250 correct words per minute so if the average person is tapping out around 65 but the Delta is all the way between 65 and 250 you begin to see like how far you can really push yourself but people get to a level that they deem acceptable and they just sort of stop there but because everybody is being forced to shut down right now if you're a musician and you're saying look I'm not worried about streaming and going live and all of that which I think there's a whole question to be answered about doing that and about how you could generate even more revenue, um, by going online. But you asked me to set that aside, so I'm going to set that aside. But right now is that chance to embrace a level of boredom that most people are not willing to push through in order to get to greatness. So in a business context, I always tell people boredom kills more entrepreneurs than anything. It kills more entrepreneurs than fear. Most people, They just can't slog through sucking at something and sitting in the discomfort that you get from doing the things that you're not good at long enough to get good at even those things so that you can truly go out and create art. Because I don't think you can create real art until you've mastered the basics to the point where, as Bruce Lee said, you don't think kick, you just kick. And I I love that quote, and there's another Bruce Lee idea, which is, I don't fear the man who knows 10,000 kicks. I fear, or I don't fear the man that does 10,000 kicks one time. I fear the man that does one kick 10,000 times. And that is this moment. And if you can take this downtime and let go of how good it feels to perform, I have to imagine a big part of the reason you got into this and that you did all of the work when you were younger to get good is because you love performing so much. But right now that's basically off the table. So if in this moment you can buckle down, be disciplined, set your sights on something very specific that you want to get good at disciplined practice, at that thing to get good at this. On the other side of this, you're gonna be far more extraordinary than you were when you went in because you no longer have the distractions of the actual performance. You can just get down to practicing. So flip that switch in your mind and think all about coming out the other side of this a beast, an absolute monster, better than you went in. And if you can tell yourself that story, I'm committed to this, I'm willing to do these things that other people aren't willing to do, and put in the practice and understand as you're going through that unimaginable boredom that on the other side of this is a skill set that has utility, then this becomes an extraordinary time. But if you keep telling yourself the story that so many others are telling, which is this is, you know, a time of deprivation, it's um, just lamenting that you're not able to perform and all the things that made you love music in the first place, then just because you're repeating that, it becomes a dark time. Focus on the other side and you will get through this amazingly.
1: Hey Tom, I'm Ono, I'm from Canada and I am an author. Um, I have a two-part question for you. Uh, The first part is, Uh, you have mentioned before that um, under an extremely high stress situation it takes you up to 45 minutes to bring yourself back down uh, to a baseline so the first part of my question is what kind of stress was that that took you up to a 45 uh, minute window because i know that as a general rule you're very good at uh, at mitigating your stress and bringing it back down very quickly so i'm just curious what kind of stress that was Uh, and the second part of my question is do you handle your meditative practice differently depending on what kind of stress is the the trigger? So for example, if you are uh, fearful or if you are angry, for example, uh, do you do anything differently, um, physical activity or anything like that or is it always the same uh, process?
0: I will say that I don't change my meditation practice based on the type of stress. Um, The reason is meditation for me is not a spiritual act. Meditation for me is entirely biological. So when I think about why meditation became so powerful for me, it was because from the very first diaphragmatic breath that I ever took, I felt immediate movement from the sympathetic nervous system, which is fight or flight into the parasympathetic nervous system, which is rest and digest literally from the first moment that I intentionally took a diaphragm breath, I felt relief is probably the right word. So because I felt an immediate reduction in my level of anxiety. So that is, it is immediate. It is biological, so there is a feedback feedback mechanism from the brain to the body and the body to the brain that when you breathe from your diaphragm, if you learn how to do that well, that you can't stop it from moving you over into the parasympathetic nervous system. I pause there because there are things that could be wrong if you have um, a certain type of nutrient deficiency. If you look up, um, the the um, the importance of vitamin D, which is a hormone actually, a hormone precursor that you get from exposure to the sun, you can also supplement, and K2, um, mm-hmm. you can actually get either where you don't have one or the other or they're not in the right balance, and you can get into a position where neurologically you find it very hard to move over into parasympathetic. But I'm gonna set that aside for a second and just say, if you're reasonably in balance from that perspective, um, When you take that diaphragm breath, it shifts you over. So no matter what I'm feeling, just doing a, um, it's sort of a variation on box breathing, where it's a four part breath cycle. You breathe in through your nose with a diaphragm breath. You hold on the inhale. For me, it's very brief. You exhale. For me, I just let the air out. And then you hold on the exhale, and then you repeat the cycle. In through your nose, out through your mouth. And when I do that with proper diaphragm breathing, I just man it it is really amazing how rapidly I can shift into being calm now, like you said, there are some times in my life where I've been so extraordinarily stressed out uh, that it takes me what I will say is a very long time so uh, but the good news is that knowing that I'm never more than 45 minutes away from being at what I call um, no background radiation. So uh, anxiety for me feels like background radiation. And when I'm completely calm, I feel like I've gotten that to zero and I'm in a calm and creative state. Um, And the times that I've been most stressed are times where you're dealing with hundreds of millions of dollars that the decisions that you make are not only affecting you but they're affecting other people they're you know you're affecting your employees like when you have your own company um there really is a tremendous amount of weight if you're not a sociopath with knowing that your employees livelihoods are tied up in this company that you're creating and that they're trying to take care of themselves they're trying to take care of their families and you're all intertwined and that the choices that you make don't just affect you, they affect other people. And so that's when I feel a much heavier burden is when I feel like this isn't just about me, man, this is about other people. And when it's about not just me, but other people, and there are huge sums of money, huge consequences at risk, that was the time in my life, because it was the first time that I had ever been in that sort of extreme circumstance um, where, yeah, it took me a good 45 minutes to calm down.
1: Hi, my name is Eva Choi. I own a small business in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I have a question about motivation and team and leadership. It's been almost five months since the pandemic has been announced. And my husband, who's my business partner, he and I are pretty tired because we also manage um, a family, three children who are elementary school aged. In the meantime, our team, our our fulfillment and customer service teams have been taking a pretty good beating in the land of customer service. Um, Clients are triggered. Clients are emotionally fragile. Clients are very, very demanding during these times. For the most part, our team has been really great about it, but it's seeming to take its toll. I was wondering if you had any nuggets of information on how I can help lead my team to keep them uh, hopeful and optimistic and positive through these times. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Wow. I love that. You're asking that question. Um, anybody that's thinking about that is thinking about the right things. One of the things I think people don't understand about being a CEO is that ultimately being a CEO, running a company is almost, I mean, it's 70% people. I mean, the strategy is definitely important, but man, momentum isn't about moving fast or I should say it isn't just about moving fast, it's about getting a group of people pointed in the same direction and moving fast. And so understanding how to galvanize a team and get them pointed in the same direction is really, really critical. So in this specific time, number one is leading by example, always and forever. If you want to do anything when people are involved, whether it's kids, whether it's uh, somebody you love that is, um, there's a piece of advice you definitely, that, desperately want them to take and they're not taking it, Um, whether it's your company, the answer is always first and foremost lead by example. That is critically important. So you want to be hopeful. You want to be optimistic. You want to show them through your behaviors and your actions time and time again with an inhuman level of consistency exactly how to face adversity. Now, you don't want to bullshit. You don't want to lie. So you want to make sure that you're doing the work to make sure that you're keeping yourself hopeful and optimistic. Now, how do we stay hopeful and optimistic? We have to have certain beliefs in place and we have to have certain rules in place. So first of all, as it comes to rules, I know that I always need to be moving forward. I can't ever be afraid to make a decision that I would rather be running a thousand miles an hour in the wrong direction than standing still. Okay, that rule has served me very well. Now, why is it better? Tom, you're running in the wrong direction. That's way worse than standing still. Not true. The reason that you never want to stand still is there's zero progress made when you stand still. When you move, you're at least learning, even if you're moving in the wrong direction. Failure is the most information-rich data stream you will ever encounter. Let me say that again. Failure, moving in the wrong direction, is the most information-rich data stream you will ever encounter, meaning you're gonna learn a lot. So now, when you turn around and you start moving in the right direction, you're making a huge amount of progress. So even though, yes, you have to backtrack, It's still far better than standing still and not learning those lessons. So that is huge, so you have that rule. Now beliefs, you need to believe that if it doesn't violate the laws of physics, then you can solve the problem. What happens is most people stay in this frame of mind where all they can see are the problems. And right now, there is an avalanche of problems. It is so easy to get mired in the problems. But if you have a belief that as long as it doesn't violate the laws of physics, this is possible that any obstacle can be overcome, that you just have to figure out what it is that's going to allow you to go over this obstacle, under this obstacle, through this obstacle, around this obstacle, whatever, but you know that giving up is not an option. Now, it's like, cool, hey, even if I fail, even if I mess up, I'm gonna learn. So there's some hope, there's some optimism, right? You can meet your team with a truism, something that you actually believe. Um, You can use Jocko Willink's language, which he says anytime something goes wrong, his only response is good. The enemy is bearing down on us, good. We don't have enough equipment, good. And because he meets it with that, he stays in a solution-oriented mindset. Now, you always wanna be in a solution-oriented mindset when all you're doing is focusing on the problems and the most sinister thing about excuses is how valid they are. So I get it, you have every excuse in the book for things to fail, to not be optimistic, to not be hopeful, I get it, and it's all real. We are going through the most devastating time for a business ever. And how do I respond to that? Good. Because I know in this, there's going to be a solution and I'm going to figure it out where a lot of people are going to break because they're not going to be able to get their head in the right place. So my team can see that I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic because I have that belief, because I have the rule to be moving forward, to figure this out, to not be afraid to fail. And they see me with that like almost naive optimism always moving forward but they also see me learning from my mistakes reorienting and moving forward again if you can do that you're actually going to get results and nothing is more hopeful than results okay well the good or bad news is that i can completely relate to that and here is the reality no matter how successful the person is that you're looking at and wishing you could be like them and thinking that they have everything all figured out The one thing that I can promise you is that all of us struggle on the inside. That is just a reality of the human condition. Once you understand that that is a reality, that that's just a part of the human condition, then you can begin to ideally let yourself off the hook and that you're not spending a lot of time, um, stuck there. But to give you a specific example from my life, the biggest one, the most harrowing one that I went through was in film school. So, uh, To cut a very long story short, I went to film school, believed that I had innate talent. I went into film school with a fixed mindset. Um, I did very well at the beginning of film school, and that all to me felt like it was proof that I was right, that I was naturally gifted, that I was a born storyteller and that I was going to go and have an illustrious career. And I actually went through a fascinating period in film school where I was both terrified that secretly I wasn't good enough. And, but at the same time, actually believe that I was naturally gifted, and this is what I was meant to do. And every bit of feedback that I got in either direction was, it made me believe to the core of my being that it was true. So when I would do something poorly, I would think, see, that part of me that was convinced that I actually don't have talent, you were right. And then I would do something well, and the part of me that believed that was like, see, I knew it, you were born for this. And it all came crashing down as I worked my way up the ranks at USC Film School. um, Only four people are chosen to direct what's known as a senior thesis film or a 480. And I was one of the four people picked. And I was like, see, I knew it, man. I'm born for this. Of course, I got picked to do one of the senior thesis films. That just makes sense. I'm, I'm that good. And I thought, okay, cool. The thing that makes the thesis film so important is the film school pays your budget to make this film. So at a time where there's no YouTube, there's no iPhones, like filming is an expensive endeavor here. You've got somebody that's paying for it and that becomes your calling card to the industry. So George Lucas famously made one of these films. And obviously we know how his career ended up working out. And they showed us his 480, by the way, and it was amazing. It was amazing. And so you could see that here was this gifted filmmaker. And so I have that in my head. Like, look at George Lucas's films. Absolutely brilliant. He's gone on to have this brilliant career. I'm going to make an equally brilliant film or maybe a little more brilliant. And then I'm going to go become the next Lucas or the next Spielberg. And I'm going to take that film and get my three picture deal. And I proceeded to run smack bang into one immutable truth. And that was that I wasn't a talented filmmaker. And I don't say that to be humble, I say that out of truth, because I didn't have the skill set to make a good film. Once the level of complexity had gone beyond a certain level, so I had thrived in these really short, really simple films. And then once you're talking actors and dialogue and you know the things that would come close to what we would recognize as a normal film, uh, I had no idea what I was doing. Try and try as I might, I couldn't figure out how to make the film come out well. And it didn't come out well. And I was mortified and I was embarrassed and I never wanted anybody to see that film. And I was really and truly devastated. So I want you to imagine your whole life. So what I graduated at like 22. So from 12 to 22, all I knew was I wanted to be a filmmaker and my whole life was moving towards that. And it looked like I had the natural gift. And of course, if you're going to be an artist, you're either born with it or you're not right. That's All anybody said, I can't express enough. In the 80s and 90s when I grew up, when people talked about art, you either had it or you didn't, and that was that. There was no sense of growth mindset. Carol Dweck had not written the book yet. And so it wasn't even like I knew there was a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. I just knew you're either born with it or you're not. The great news was I was born with it. Here we go. It's gonna be amazing. And then boom, I can't do it. And I realized, oh my God, I wasn't born with anything. I don't know how to do this. There is a tremendous amount of process to this art. And I don't know that at all. But of course, as I'm in the middle of it, I just think my world has come crashing down. I'm not gifted. I will never be gifted. And therefore, I will never be a filmmaker. I will never make anything of myself. And just, it was a downward spiral of epic proportions. At the height of that, I would go home from my dead-end job and I would lay face down on the carpet because I couldn't afford furniture. And literally, just sit there. I can still feel that cheap nylon carpet and the way that it felt on my face as I laid there, thinking, "Well, my life is effectively over. Certainly, the my life that was working towards a dream is over, and now it's just about finding a way to uh, be the smartest person in the room." And if that means that I have to go and work a dead-end job to be the smartest person in the room, then that's what I'll do. And so I used to go and interview for jobs having nothing to do with film because I felt totally broken. And my goal was to, at some point in the interview, have the interviewer say, you're so smart, why are you interviewing for this role? And because I had a fixed mindset and I so needed that praise from the outside, I was putting myself in these super weird and useless positions just to get that little nugget of, oh my God, like you're so smart. And I had to put myself in sort of worse and worse company to get to that point. And finally, and I don't remember what it was that led me to this idea of brain plasticity, but somewhere in the depths of my despair, I realized, can we get better? Maybe we can. And so I started reading about the brain and that started to plant seeds in my mind that maybe brain plasticity was real and maybe I could get better. And just because I wasn't good at film today, maybe I could get better at film down the road. And I ended up getting a job teaching film because remember those that can do those that can't teach. So I felt like, okay, well, I can teach this even if I can't do it. And then so between reading about the brain and realizing, wait a second. If I work at this thing, I actually get better. My brain actually changes and I become better at something. And given, you know, having gone through however many years of schooling I'd been through, I started thinking about it, like, wait a second, you would come into any class. And the funny thing is, as a kid, I remember every grade just being absolutely terrified that, well, I did okay at being a fourth grader, but mom, I'm gonna get devastated as a fifth grader. I don't know what I'm doing. And no matter how many times my mom would console me and say, remember, they're gonna teach you how to learn the things that a fifth grader needs to know. They don't expect you to already know it. It just wouldn't sink in. And so I was sort of back in that moment of, you know, I don't know how to do this, but maybe my mom is right, maybe the neuroscientists are right, and maybe I can learn to become that thing I wanna become. I start teaching film, and as I'm teaching it, I realize, wait, I'm helping my students become better filmmakers. So if I can help them become better filmmakers and brain plasticity is really true then I could get better as a filmmaker myself and that that realization changed the rest of my life and this is why I am so obsessed with the idea of a growth mindset and brain plasticity because the biology backs it up and once you understand it's what I call the only belief that matters the only belief that matters is that if you put time and energy into getting better at something, you'll actually get better. And that those skills have utility. So learning how to make a better film means you can actually make a better film and more people will go see it and be moved by it and they'll pay for the tickets and they'll buy the plush toys. But that all came down to, you went and got good at telling stories. You went and got good at making movies. But it was a skill set that you garnered. Now, of course, we're not blank slates. So some of us are gonna learn that process easier. And typically, when somebody learns something easier, we say, Oh, they were born with it. But the reality is, well, they may have had a um, they get a disproportionate return on the amount of time that they spend studying that thing. But the reality is they still have to study that thing, and so you don't find people achieving just levels of greatness, you know, even take a LeBron, who the amount of time that he spends working on his craft, making sure that his body's in peak physical condition, reading the game, all of that. He has to do all that, even though he has also incredible natural talent. So it can be useful to look for areas where, hey, I have a love for this thing and I'm good at it. I get a disproportionate return. That's a better way to think of it. That when I put energy into learning this thing, I get maybe 1.3x return on that versus somebody else who might get a 0.7 return. But what I want everybody to understand is you get a return. And so once you understand that you get a return, it may take you longer. You may have to work harder than somebody else, but if you love it enough and you want to be that thing, then you can become that thing. And so that was exactly how I got myself out of that downward spiral and working my way up to feeling good, developing confidence and understanding that now, if I can get good at anything that I want, then how I spend my time becomes a spiritual consideration. And when you approach life like that, like I can be good at anything, maybe not the greatest of all time. Maybe you need like that disproportionate returns thing, but you can get, I'll just, I'm going to start saying, you can get a hundred times better at anything that you pursue, right? If you can get a hundred times better at anything, imagine how that will change your life if you pick something that matters to you and helps other people. And you get 100 times better at that thing over the course of 40 years than you are today. That is a game changer. It will change your life. It will change your financial situation. It will change your emotional situation. Everything about your life changes when you realize you can dedicate yourself to getting good at things that matter. And so that is the classic example from my life of where I was completely mired in a fixed mindset i had never even heard of a growth mindset and i had to cobble the tenants together on my own carol dweck i'm looking at you you uh if only you had written that book 15 years earlier uh could have saved me from a lot of struggle and strife and ultimately it was just about what worked and that's the biology of it if you put dedicated time and energy to getting better at something you will get better. Here is the technique that I use around woulda, coulda, shoulda. So I have a belief and a rule. So my belief is that it doesn't make sense to do or believe anything that doesn't move you towards your goals. And then I have a rule, which is that same thing stated as a to do basically, which is that I do not allow myself to do or believe anything that Moves me away from my goals. Okay, so I believe that it just makes sense to make sure that you have a goal that's exciting and honorable. But once you have an exciting and honorable goal, then you wanna make sure that you filter every decision that you take through. Is this leading me towards my goal or not? And if you have a belief that, oh man, I should have done this better. If only I would have done this. If thinking about that and feeling badly about that actually helps you and by the way sometimes it does briefly you don't want to live there then use that use that to spur you on to get better to learn more to work harder next time to analyze the failure and figure out what it is you're going to learn do all of that and when you have that energy that's nature's way that pain That's nature's way of making sure that you focus. In fact, that pain lights up regions of the brain that have to do with focus and attention. So now you've got your focus and attention on this failure, what you could have done differently in the past, you're reevaluating it, you're gonna pay more attention, you're gonna learn that skill, now you're gonna move forward better than when you started. In fact, Henry Ford has a quote, failure is simply the ability to begin again, but this time, more educated. So, All right, word, that's what failure is. Now, when it becomes a problem is when you allow yourself to stay in that pain. You allow yourself to stay in that mode that you keep coming back to it. And it's just corroding your sense of self. It's making you feel worse about yourself. It's making you feel less likely to take action. In that moment, I use a cognitive behavioral therapy technique called a pattern interrupt. And I pattern interrupt and I say, hey, I don't allow myself to do or believe anything that moves me away from my goals. So I have officially taken this too far. I'm feeling badly about something that I wish I had done differently, but now it's becoming corrosive. It's no longer giving me that springboard forward. I'm spending too much time here. So now, done, stop. And I force myself to think about, cool, you know that you can get good at anything. So now, what in that failure has been revealed that you're not good enough at that thing yet, go get good at that thing, or find a partner who can do that for you, or say, okay, that's not the thing that I'm going to pursue. It would take too much time and energy for me to get good at that thing. Like, take magic, for instance. I'm fucking obsessed. I love magic. Close-up magic, you can't imagine. I really love it. I've taken classes, I've practiced, and it's really fun. But when I think about the amount of time that it would take to actually get good. Fuck that way too much time. Another example. There was a brief period in my life where I wanted to become a stand-up comic. True. Strange, perhaps, but true. And I went and did an open mic night and I was OK. I was funny ish. And I stayed. It was uh on open mic night, you get like a bunch of nobodies and then followed by some big names that uh, they come out, they do their thing, but they're trying new material. So it's not particularly funny if I'm interested, if I'm honest. And so I'm sitting there and at first it was like 350 people and then there's, you know, 275 and then 115. And then by the end of the night, it was literally like eight of us, nine of us. And me and my friend are like, all right, we just cannot take one more Comic trying out material. This is getting really torturous. And so we get up to leave. And this guy's manager comes out and he says, Hey, the person who's about to come out is the funniest man in America. You are not going to want to miss this. And I look at my friend and I'm like, All right, fuck it. This is the last guy. Let's just stay and we'll have done the whole night. And this guy comes out and he does his routine. And if you've ever heard of Mitch Hedberg, it was Mitch Hedberg. The guy's a fucking legend. And when you're done with this video, go look up Mitch Hedberg. He was so funny that I actually thought to myself, can you die from laughing? Because I could not catch my breath. I was laughing so hard. And the way that his joke structure is, he's giving you another punchline like every 30 seconds. So I'm like barely winding down from the joke before, and he hits you with another one. And I, I am literally doubled over in hysteria, gasping for air, wondering if I'm going to die laughing. and at the end of his routine when he walked off the stage i was like well to get that good and by then i was beginning to believe that i could get good at things to get that good i would have to dedicate the rest of my life to it and i'm not prepared to do that and that was a real eye opening moment of okay so compared to him i was a catastrophic failure and my response wasn't oh i'm a loser I'm a failure. My response was, all right, pony up, man. You can get that good, but whoa, you need to be honest about what it would take to get there and then just be honest with yourself about what it would take and whether or not you want to do it, you want to put in that time and the energy to get that good. And then if you don't, then don't lie, just say, I'm not funny enough, and I'm not interested in pursuing that skill set. And when you say it like that, then you know that you're on the hunt for the thing that matters enough to you that you're going to see something through. Now, talking about drive and how to build that's outside of the scope of this conversation, but you get the idea. It is very freeing to just say, okay, I could get that good, but I'm just not interested enough in it. Doesn't mean I don't like it. It just means that I'm not interested in pursuing that skill set. So, That's the technique that I use to deal with that whenever my mind is going somewhere negative. And if you do that every time your mind goes somewhere negative, you either use it as that impulse to push you forward to go learn what you need to learn. Or if it's now corrosive and you're spending too much time there, you pattern interrupt, you get out of it, you remind yourself that you can learn anything. And now it's just a question of whether you want to spend the time and the energy to learn that. And don't waste time lamenting that so many things come too hard to you. Doesn't fucking matter. That's just a question of how badly you want it. Because let me tell you, virtually nothing in my life comes easily to me. And yet I've built a life that I absolutely love, even though some of the things that I have to deal with are a fucking struggle. And I look at other people that they get that disproportionate return that I wish that I had. And I've still been able to build a life that fills me with joy and fulfillment. And ironically, in not pursuing money, I have made money. Pursue the joy, pursue the fulfillment, use the techniques. They work. I want to talk about Jocko Willing's idea of no matter what life throws at you, the reaction is good. I lost my job, good. My woman left me for no reason, good. People took money from me, good. All of it, good. Once you flip that switch in your mind, like even now, that gave me the chills, just thinking how powerful. The reaction to the world's most negative news to say, good, yeah, good. Now. You have to come up with a reason why it's good, and the reason that it's good is because you know that the only way to think about failure, quote-unquote failure, is like AI, artificial intelligence, okay? and AI, it's not called failure, it's called a sample, okay? You try something. So if you've ever seen the video of AI learning to play the video game Breakthrough, the old Atari game, it is hilarious. You see this paddle squiggling around like crazy. Obviously the AI has no idea what it's supposed to do. So all it's programmed to do is get a high score, but it doesn't know what gives it a score. It doesn't know, am I supposed to move the paddle? Am I supposed to hit the ball? Is the ball supposed to, you know, break through the blocks at the top? And so it just like does these random ass movements. And then finally it'll hit the ball. And then finally the ball breaks a brick. And then finally it finds the most efficient path to break all of it. Now, let me tell you, in my 20s, I don't know about you, but in my 20s I was a mess. In my early 20s, I was so lost, frustrated, afraid, insecure, overwhelmed, paralyzed. I mean, it was it was a dark period in my life. That's the nature of your 20s. Now in my 20s, as old as this is going to make me sound, in my 20s, the internet barely existed. So we certainly didn't have YouTube. There wasn't people putting out content that would allow me to recontextualize my world. The fact that you already know the quote that success is going from failure to failure to failure without a loss of enthusiasm, you were so much farther ahead than where I was. Now, I'm gonna use an analogy of love. If I may, one of the things I find most interesting about love is that in love, you are opening yourself up to being far more easily hurt. When you are in love, it's a very vulnerable state. You have opened yourself to somebody. You've given yourself over in a way to that person. And now you are far more easily hurt. They know your insecurities. They could weaponize them against you. And when heartbreak comes along, it's very tempting to turtle up and to protect yourself. But then you're closed off from the things that make love valuable in the first place. The very thing that makes love worthwhile is being able to be open like that to somebody, to be vulnerable to somebody. And the thing that makes love so extraordinary is that even when you get hurt, The people that can open themselves up again and approach somebody without the baggage of previous relationships are the ones that end up finding that beautiful relationship that ends up being worth the vulnerability and worth the sacrifice. And speaking from experience, ends up being the single greatest thing in your life. Now, if you learned nothing from the heartbreak, I understand why it's scary to go into the next thing. But the idea here, the very way that we bounce back from failure is by looking exclusively at what we can do differently. And when you look exclusively, I'm not saying other people didn't do something that maybe it's, maybe any rational person would say it's all their fault. Maybe the list of things you gave us is literally, you were just the world's unluckiest human being. But the reason that we're gonna say good The reason that we're gonna look at this like AI and samples, the reason we're gonna remind ourselves that success is going from failure to failure to failure without a loss of enthusiasm, the reason that we're gonna think of that love analogy and be willing to open ourselves back up is because we're gonna figure out what we could have done differently. We're gonna see what can I improve in my skill set. What did this catastrophe reveal about my strategy? And whenever a strategy, yields a result different than the desired result, then you know the strategy is by definition wrong. And I want you to own that. Doesn't mean you're a bad person, okay? but it does mean that your strategy wasn't working. Go back to AI, right? It's wiggling around. It finally realizes, oh, I need to hit the ball. Okay, cool. So now I'm gonna track the movement of the ball and I'm gonna adjust my paddle to be there. Okay, cool, I got it. Oh, I actually see that hitting it on the sides is far more advantageous than hitting it in the middle because once I clear a path on the side, then the ball can bounce around on the top and destroy bricks far faster than any other strategy. Okay, amazing. But you had to first have the reaction that that failure was good, good, because it revealed the flaw in my strategy. And because I'm playing the long-term game, I'm going to open myself back up again. I'm going to allow myself to be vulnerable again. I'm going to let the wound hurt as much as it needs to for me to learn the lesson. No more, I'm not gonna beat myself up over it. I'm not gonna end up in a death spiral of shame, but I am going to, recognize that i could do something different the next time and get a different result that to run the same strategy and expect the result to change is as einstein said the definition of insanity so that's what you have to do here you have to recognize that this thing that you consider the worst thing that ever happened to you with the change of framing is actually the best thing that ever happened to you. And if you change the question that you ask about this and say, how did this help me? What did I learn from this? Or what could I learn from this? And how can this improve my strategy moving forward? Then all of a sudden the frame of reference changes, the emotion, the way you feel about it, the dark energy that's around it begins to change because you're stoked, right? This is good. All right, I'm gonna learn something from this and it's gonna be X, Y, Z. And maybe you only get incrementally better and you try again and maybe you fail again and you get incrementally better. And all of a sudden, if your life is anything like mine, your 20s were getting kicked in the face over and over and over, but getting a little bit better at blocking, a little bit better at avoiding. And then finally in your 30s, you begin to find your footing and then you turn into beast mode, late 30s, early 40s. And now you feel like you can really move the world. It's exactly what it feels like when you understand how your own mind works, how the minds of others work, and just sort of the nature of the world. It's really incredible. But the only way to get there is to flounder around, to make horrendous mistakes and say good. We're now dealing with the physics of the human mind. And my obsession is to get people to understand that you are having a biological experience. Now, why do I want you to understand that you're having a biological experience? Because I want you to understand that the brain reacts a certain way and you can actually insert yourself into that and change your approach, framing, the way that you react and in changing those things, you will change not only the way you feel, but the outcomes that you're able to get. And so I wanna introduce you to Viktor Frankl and cognitive behavioral therapy. So Viktor Frankl said, between stimulus and response is a gap, and how we choose to react in that gap will determine the rest of our lives. Now, if you don't know Viktor Frankl, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. He wrote that book after getting released from Auschwitz, okay? This is a guy that survived multiple concentration camps, and he was a neuroscientist, and his ability to explain what is happening inside the mind of a human during something that catastrophic is breathtaking. And when you realize that a guy that went through something that just seems unimaginable for a human being to endure, says the way that you endure it is to one, find meaning in your suffering. So why am I going through all of this? What do I expect to see on the other side of, in your case, shortening the window? Okay, this was a big thing in my life learning to emotionally soothe. Whoever emotionally soothes themselves the fastest is gonna win because you don't waste the week spiraling out of control, right? So if for me, it takes three seconds to emotionally soothe and it takes you a week, you can imagine how much more progress I'm gonna make in a year than you're going to make. Okay, so Viktor Frankl says we've got that gap. For you, that gap may be very, very small. And now what we're trying to do is widen that gap. Now, how are we gonna widen that gap? We're gonna widen that gap with cognitive behavioral therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy is beyond the scope of this um, video to go into all the sort of details about it. But I will say one of the most important things that's talked about in CBT is pattern interrupting. So you know that these patterns aren't serving you. You know that spending a week derailed, not feeling resilient is a waste of your time. So now when you feel that lack of resilience, the emotional distress, you're going to interrupt that pattern. Now I'll give you an example in my own life. So for me, I don't allow myself to feel overwhelmed. And as dumb as that sounds, it works extraordinarily well. So as I can feel that, you know, that sense of like, like agitation, like you can feel your brain like speeding up and you can sort of feel yourself like escalating and moving towards panic. In that moment, I say to, first of all, I bring my chin down and I furrow my eyebrows and I say, I don't do overwhelm. And by saying that phrase, it interrupts the pattern. And the reason I know that works goes back to this idea of you're having a biological experience. And I know that there is nothing either good or bad It is thinking that makes it so, right? Shout out to Mr. Shakespeare. There's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. It isn't what's happening to you. It's what you think about what's happening to you. So I'm not overwhelmed motherfucker because I don't do overwhelm. And now all of a sudden by reminding myself, I don't do overwhelm. Now I may take things off my plate. I may decide no matter what's going on, right now I'm going to sit and meditate. I may remind myself that breathing from my diaphragm will physiologically, whether I wanted to or not, if I do it long enough, it will move me out of the sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight, into the parasympathetic nervous system, rest and digest. That is physiological. And so I'm going to do those things. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm wired differently than anybody or that I'm doing anything, you know, particularly special, but it interrupts the pattern of escalation that I've gotten into because I'm thinking that this is bad. I'm thinking, Oh my God, I've got all these things going on. I'm never going to be able to handle them. There's so much pressure. What the fuck am I going to do? And in that moment, what I do is remind myself, I don't do overwhelm. So for you, it may be reminding yourself, I don't spiral out of control for a week. I don't allow that in myself. What I do is I meditate. What I do is I remember failure as part of the process. What I do is remind myself that like artificial intelligence, I need these samples. I need these moments of failure. This is exactly why I need an anti-fragile personality. My very identity is tied up in learning, okay? That's a huge thing. When you tie your ego to being the learner, now all of a sudden the pattern interrupt becomes, I'm the learner. I don't mind that I failed. Nothing to spiral out of control about. I'm gonna learn from this and I'm gonna keep going. In fact, I wanna know, what can I learn from this? What's the lesson here? And when you change your framing and you look at that and you take advantage of Viktor Frankl's gap and you fill that gap with, I'm the learner. I'm gonna get better from this. What can I learn? Everything else is gonna take care of itself.